Hello, and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode 16 of the podcast, in which we will look at chapter 14 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, ironically titled The Triumph of the Witch. And this is uh, the most pivotal scene, the most uh, significant scene of the novel, the crux of the novel itself, but also one of the most important and most memorable scenes of the entire series. And uh, Lewis has been leading us into seeing it from last week's chapter uh, concerning the deep magic from the dawn of time, where there is an appeal made between Aslan and the White Witch over the life of Edmund, the traitor, where they appeal to this standard that has been written into the very stone of the table, is written into the design uh, and the existence of Narnia. And it's this deep magic where this law that cannot be trespassed And it is as firm and as adamant as the prophecy is, which we are seeing come to fruition. The prophecy that Mr. Beaver gave to the children about the four thrones in Ker Paravel, that is a prophecy that is firm and fixed. Even the White Witch knows uh, of that prophecy and the power of it. That's why she's trying to do everything she's doing. Um, But with the deep magic of the law, this is something that Uh, we know something momentous has to occur to satisfy this deep magic that the White Witch is appealing to. And in chapter 14, uh, we see the actual uh, death of Aslan in this great exchange, this glorious exchange with Edmund. And um, a lot of readers of Narnia uh, consider this scene, we look back at this scene as one of the most touching and uh, obviously one of the most... um, important regarding the Christian symbolism of the story, that this is the moment where Aslan dies in the very spot that the White Witch preferred to kill Edmund, that the the great exchange of Aslan's life for Edmund's, uh, the substitutionary atonement of this scene is uh, impossible to miss, um, where the great king Aslan offers his life in the place of one, what Doug Wilson calls one grimy little boy, where Edmund's sins are not treated as though they never happened. Uh, The deep magic requires that all treason is punished. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. There's there's no undoing that. That is a truism, that the wages of sin is death. All sinners must die. What Aslan does is provides a means of having satisfaction for that law, satisfaction of that justice and that demand for blood, not on Edmund, but on himself. And this atonement sequence, of course, is at the very heart of the Christian faith, but also seems to be the the most crucial scene of this entire novel. And there's a lot to be said about this before we dive into the actual chapter. It's a a gorgeous uh, chapter in, in the way in which Lewis unravels the emotional tenderness and the uh, the seriousness of this scene as it is felt by several different figures. Uh, of course, by Aslan himself, we see his sorrow and his uh, melancholy approach to the stone table, knowing what he is walking towards. We see the concern and the fear and the anxiety in Susan and Lucy. Uh, and then, of course, we see the, uh, the sense of um, cruel joy and, and merriment on the side of the White Witch. So, this scene, not much occurs in this chapter beyond the actual death of Aslan, but yet yet Lewis is able to conjure up this great sense of excitement, fear, uh, drama, and intentional 
uh, sincerity and seriousness on what is occurring, the one thing that does occur in this chapter. Um, regarding the Christian uh, imagery that Lewis employs here with the with Aslan's exchange uh, for Edmund here, that this moment in the story is one that um, really is is needed for us to see in order to in order to gain a, a full appreciation of it. And it begins all the way back in, in the New Testament, where Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, um, one of the greatest passages in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 5, 20, 21, Paul says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That this is what some people think Lewis call, uh, not Lewis, Luther, Martin Luther, uh, what he called the great exchange. That he made, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that my sin was placed onto Christ and he died in my place as a substitute for me and thus satisfied the wrath of God and purchased my redemption and my forgiveness, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's like um, what Charles Spurgeon said. He says, you stand before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. And note that you stand before God as if you were Christ, which is what Paul says, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You stand before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. He became sin and took the punishment, took the curse, died on the tree in our place. And Aslan does the same glorious exchange where he dies in the very spot that the white witch preferred to kill Edmund. He dies on the stone, on the law, on the table itself, the place where justice was to be measured out, where sin had to be punished. Treason had to be uh, punished and, and justified. And um, many people listening to this might've seen the Narnia movies that came out um, a little over a decade ago. And regardless of your opinion on the movies, you know, they, they hit in some places and missed in a lot more others, perhaps. Um, but there's one moment that I think the filmmakers got pitch perfect. And that is this scene with Aslan's death on the stone table. So if you get a chance to return to the 2005 movie of the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, uh, the scene where Aslan um, ascends the hill with Susan and Lucy and they hide out in the bushes behind the tree and uh, the whole execution scene of Aslan there, just the, the, what they do with the music and the lighting and how the taunting and the humiliation occurs. And uh, the most beautiful shot in that scene, if you go back and watch it is when the, the music, the pace of the music is quickening and the, all the ogres and hags are pounding their, their rods on the, on the stone and they're all howling and, and jeering. And the music is, growing faster and faster and faster. And the cameras alternate between a very zoomed in close up of Aslan's face and a zoom in on Lucy's face. And it goes back and forth. And then it goes right onto Aslan's eyes the moment that he's killed. And however they did this, you can just feel the life leaving his eyes when the knife descends into his body. Um, and just the, and it, the music stops into this serene stillness and this, silence and you see lucy's response it's a very emotional response on her face i think they did a great job of capturing the violence and the devastation of this scene especially for a first-time reader that doesn't quite know what aslan had agreed to 
with the White Witch? What is he going to? And when you see that he has died in Edmund's place, uh, the power of the gospel comes down. And you're able to see just how beautiful this exchange is, where God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Uh, beautiful moment. There's a, I mentioned Luther with the phrase, the great exchange that many people attribute to him. This is uh, from a letter, a personal letter Martin Luther had written on this sense of a substitutionary atonement. Luther says this, therefore, my dear brother, learn Christ and him crucified. Learn to pray to him and despairing of yourself say, thou Lord Jesus art my righteousness but I am thy sin. Thou hast taken upon thyself what is mine and has given to me what is thine. Thou hast taken upon thyself what thou wast not and hast given to me what I was not. Listen to that again. Thou, Lord Jesus, art my righteousness, but I am thy sin. Thou hast taken upon thyself what is mine and has given to me what is thine. Thou hast taken upon thyself what thou wast not and has given to me what I was not. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5. And so the chapter title for chapter 14, The Triumph of the Witch, is supremely ironic. And this is no triumph of the witch. This is the triumph of Aslan. This is the moment in which he purchases redemption, not just for Edmund, but in the last battle, Lewis says that by Aslan's sacrifice, all of Narnia, was saved. That this is the very centerpiece of God's entire redemptive plan throughout all eternity. And for Aslan, it is a moment of beautiful sorrow. Um, Isaiah says he's a man of sorrows. Uh, that Isaiah 53, that great chapter, that, um, that like a lamb to going to slaughter, he opens not his mouth. And we'll see here in Aslan's execution that he doesn't resist. He doesn't open his mouth. Although uh, Lewis takes pains to narrate that Aslan could have stopped the whole thing. And so the parallels to Christ's atonement in this scene, in this chapter, are beautiful, compelling, and ultimately true. They're ultimately the substance of the great gospel of Christ. And Aslan had already said this a couple chapters ago. He tells the children that all shall be done, but it may be harder than you think. All will be well with Edmund. It just might be harder than you imagine. And so with all of that, we dive into the actual uh, chapter itself. Chapter 14, The Triumph of the Witch. Uh, we note that uh, they are moving their camps to the fords of Baruna. Uh, that will be the location of the first great battle of Baruna that happens at the end of this novel. Aslan takes Peter aside, as he's done already before, a couple of chapters earlier, and explains to her the battle plans, which is a great point to note that Aslan knows uh, what he's agreed to. Aslan knows the deeper magic from before the dawn of time, um, that he is aware of uh, the power of substitutionary atonement. He, he knows what is coming, and yet he finds it important to disciple Peter in, in battle plans and battle strategies. So there's, there's a great war that will continue to be fought even after Aslan's death and resurrection. And that fight in, involves human agency. It involves Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy. It involves you and me. It's a fight that we're still handling. 2,000 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, here we are still fighting this great battle. So 
Um, Aslan's discipleship of Peter's leadership as the king in making, as the great high king Peter, the magnificent, is ongoing. It is not something that once Aslan is resurrected, then um, everything is instantly finished, that there is still a fight to be had, although it is a fight, the victory of which has been made decisive with the death and resurrection of Aslan. Um, after he talks to Peter, they um, they have dinner together. Lewis notes that it's a rather sad um, event, that there seems to be something going on in Aslan's heart that is weighing on him, bringing a great deal of heaviness. And Lewis says this a couple paragraphs in. He says, it was as if the good times, having just begun, were already drawing to their end. And notice the nostalgic, mournful tone there. It was as if the good times, having just begun, were already drawing to their end. And think of the good times that they just witnessed. The breaking of winter, the redemption of Edmund, he was restored back to their family, the meeting of Aslan, the most important moment for these children, and that numinous sense of wonder and excitement at being in his presence. And now Lewis says it was as if the good times, having just begun, were already drawing to their end. But notice this is how it felt. It was as if the good times were already drawing to their end. How it felt, though, is not an accurate representation of the truth. Uh, Remember all the way back to uh, the first chapter, how seemingly ordinary the professor's house appeared and how seemingly ordinary the wardrobe appeared. Um, This is something that's going to be close to Lewis's heart, that the appearance of a thing and the reality of a thing not necessarily being in sync with one another. The, the most famous example of this comes from the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where Eustace is rebuked by Ramandu, um, the retired star who has returned to uh, Earth. And uh, Eustace says, in our world, a star is just a burning ball of gas. And Ramandu says, even in your world, that is not what a star is, but simply what it is made of. There's a great deal of difference between what something is and what it appears to be or what it is made of. And that's what this deeper magic that we'll see in the next chapter consists of. The deep magic from the dawn of time is written in stone. It is evident. The law is evident. But the deeper magic lies beneath. It's further up and further in. It goes further. It goes to the very heart of the matter. Just as much as the law that the Pharisees tried to follow dealt primarily with external actions. But when Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that you may not even lust in your heart, that he raises the standard to the heart level, to the further up and further in level, to the level of reality and not just appearance, not just externals or characteristics. And this is what in the final book, in the last battle, Lewis will unpack uh, what he calls the Shadowlands. Uh, that we live in the shadowlands. We live in the not yet. We live in a shadow of or a copy of the real reality, which is in the presence of Christ, which we are moving into, which Second Corinthians 5 talks about, that we, we want to be further clothed. We want to move further in. That ultimate reality is more solid and more substantive than here. This is a theme that Lewis unpacks in The Great Divorce as well, where eternity, heaven, Ultimate reality, the the new heavens and the new earth is more solid than here. The grass is more grass-like. It's thicker. It's more solid. It's harder. It's more real than here. And so when he says it was as if the good times were already drawing to their end, the phrase as if is quite important because the good times have not drawn to an end. 
right? Indeed, they've only begun. Aslan has just purchased freedom and redemption in his own sacrifice. It just seems like the good times were already drawing to their end, but the actual reality of it goes much further. It's like Good Friday, that we are celebrating the goodness of a day in which our king was murdered. How do you reconcile that? It seems paradoxical. But what appeared to be the most mournful and traumatic and sorrowful day in history was actually the most celebratory and triumphant day in history. And that's the way that Christianity works. Um, the way up is down in the Christian faith. That if you want to find your life, you must lose it. Uh, that this is We serve a paradoxical God in this way. But Susan and Lucy uh, are restless through the night. We move the perspective to Susan's perspective, which Lewis hasn't done all that much of. We've had Lucy's development um, entering uh, through the wardrobe and meeting Tumnus and so on. We've had Peter's development as the king with his first battle and so on. And we've certainly had Edmund's development. But we haven't really seen Susan develop so much. But here we get what uh, Devin Brown refers to as the gentleness of Susan, which is what her queen, her regnal name will be, Queen Susan the Gentle. Uh, and here she awakens in the night and she is restless and concerned for Aslan. Lucy is as well. So they decide to get up and see where he is uh, and to check on him. And this is the beginning of the great ascent back to the stone table up the hill that Aslan will lead them on. It's very much a picture of the Via Dolorosa or the way of suffering that Jesus walked through the city of Jerusalem. The, the way of suffering, the old road that Jesus takes the cross uh, on as he moves toward his execution, the, the Via Dolorosa, the way of sadness or the way of suffering. Um, Lewis uses that same sort of picture to describe Aslan's journey. Listen to the language of this, uh, this journey that Aslan takes with Susan and Lucy, this Via Dolorosa. Lewis says this, he led them up the steep slope out of the river valley and then slightly to the right, apparently by the very same route which they had used that afternoon in coming from the hill of the stone table. On and on he led them, into dark shadows and out into pale moonlight, getting their feet wet with the heavy dew. He looked somehow different from the Aslan they knew. His tail and his head hung low, and he walked slowly as if he were very, very tired. Notice the diction that that Lewis employs here. It's a steep slope filled with dark shadows, pale moonlight, heavy dew. His head hung low and he walked slowly as if he were very, very tired. A great deal of mournful, uh, sorrowful language employed here to describe the agony of this ascent, the agony of this journey, which recall too that in, in the garden, when Jesus prays to his father, he prays that the cup would pass from him. Um, that he would not take it. This is something that uh, caused severe anguish in the heart of Jesus, the idea of being separated from his father by bearing the weight of our sin, um, that bearing the weight of our curse is something that he did not want to take, and yet he was obedient even unto death on the cross. It's the, the Philippians picture of the suffering servant that emptied himself out and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Um, this is what we see in Aslan, that he is obedient to uh, what he had agreed, that Aslan was meant to take this on himself as part of the deeper magic from before the dawn of time 
that a willing substitute who had done no wrong, when he takes a traitor's stead, that the stone table will break and time itself, death itself will work backwards. This is where Aslan's headed, but it doesn't make it any less sorrowful, any less steep or dark or pale or heavy. All of these adjectives that Lewis uses. And then we get another great uh, biblical parallel here where Aslan senses Susan and Lucy are following him. And he says this, oh, children, children, why are you following me? We couldn't sleep, said Lucy, and then felt sure that she need say no more and that Aslan knew all they had been thinking. Please, may we come with you wherever you're going? Asked Susan. Now listen to this conversation. It's really subtle, but it's really important. Aslan says, oh, children, children, why are you following me? And their response is, please, may we come with you wherever you're going. And I, I can't help but see the parallel here to something Jesus says to his disciples in John 1. One of my favorite moments in, in the Gospel of John. Right at the beginning, John chapter 1, when Jesus is calling his first disciples, listen to the similarity between the conversation with Aslan and Susan and Lucy and the conversation Jesus has with uh, two of his disciples. The parallel here is great. Jesus and two of his disciples and Aslan and two of the Pevensey children. Aslan says, why are you following me? And they respond, please may we come with you wherever you're going. Now here's John 1, 37 through 39. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw. There are three important parallels there. First is that the two disciples, verse 37, the two disciples heard Jesus say this and they followed him. And that's exactly what we have with Susan and Lucy, that they are following in the middle of the night, choosing to follow Aslan into the night. Verse 38, Jesus turns and saw them following him and said to them, what are you seeking? Now notice in Lewis, Aslan turns and says, oh, children, children, why are you following me? What are you seeking? What are you wanting? It's a similar sort of question. Why are you following me? And the disciples' response to Jesus when he says, what are you seeking? They say, Rabbi, where are you staying? As if to say, we are seeking you. We, we will go wherever you will go. What we most want and what we most desire is you. That's what we're seeking. And Susan responds to Aslan's question, why are you following me? By saying, please, may we come with you wherever you're going. The disciples say, where are you staying? Susan says, where are you going? And Jesus says in verse 39, come and you will see. So they came and saw. That's exactly what Susan and Lucy, they follow him to the very end and they see Aslan's substitutionary atonement. They witness it for themselves and they see the miracle of the great exchange of the gospel. The miracle of 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, who made, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. They witnessed it for themselves in the middle of the night. The only two people to witness Aslan's execution, aside from the white witch and her crew. And they did so because they were obedient to follow Aslan. Why are you following me? And they said, please, may we come with you wherever you're going. And so he lets them come with him. Um, they place their hands on his great mane and comfort him. As they walk together, the three of them, one on each side of Aslan, another Christ-centered image. And then we get this beautiful statement 
And so the girls did what they would never have dared to do without his permission, but what they had longed to do ever since they first saw him, buried their cold hands in the beautiful sea of fur and stroked it, and so doing, walked with him. It's this beautifully intimate picture with Susan and Lucy of not only um, commiserating with Aslan or walking alongside him, but almost literally walking with him, touching him, united to him in his mission, in his Via Dolorosa to the table. Because they, uh, even though Edmund is the traitor in question here, uh, Susan and Lucy are not perfect. Peter is not perfect. That through Aslan's death, all Narnia will be saved. That they too must be united to Aslan. And they are afforded this, this beautiful moment of unity and intimacy with Aslan. But also, all the way back in the first chapter, uh, Lewis told us that there was nothing that Lucy loved so much than the smell and feel of fur as she's going through the wardrobe and she is wading into the fur coats. And we get this great picture, a repeated picture of that, where Lucy is is uh, placing her fingers and her hands deep into the magical and warm and glorious mane of Aslan as he's making this ascent up the hill. Lewis remarks on Aslan's great sad eyes. Is a portrait of Aslan that we'll see often throughout the Chronicles of Narnia. In The Magician's Nephew, Diggory uh, sees Aslan weeping for his mother, for Diggory's mother. Diggory tells him that his mother is back home in England and, and sick. Um, and Diggory is hoping that the apple he retrieves for Aslan will do something to heal his mother. And he looks up and Lewis says that Diggory looked into the warm face of Aslan and saw these great, big, shiny tears in Aslan's eyes. And then also in the silver chair, at the end of the silver chair, Jill and um, Jill and Eustace will see with Aslan, they'll see King Caspian uh, dead. And uh, Lewis says all three of them wept, including uh, Aslan, the great big lion, wept as well. So the weeping Aslan, which is, this is a picture of Jesus as well. In John 11, Jesus weeps over the death of Lazarus, knowing full well that Lazarus will be resurrected. That's why he came. And yet it was fitting. It was appropriate. It was right to weep, uh, to acknowledge the uh, the emotions and the feelings and the fears of humans. And, uh, the book of Hebrews says Jesus uh, was like us that in every way. Um, and so uh, the great sad eyes of Aslan are, uh, are an important feature of this path that Aslan's taking. But then we get the actual scene itself. A great crowd of people, Lewis says, were standing all around the stone table, and though the moon was shining, many of them carried torches which burned with evil-looking red flames and black smoke. And Lewis will go on to describe all the different sorts of monsters that are there. He mentions ogres, wolves, hags, wraiths, sprites, orkneys, uh, and so on. Then he says right in the middle is the witch herself. But then there's this great uh, intrusion where Lewis, the narrator, uh, says something to his children readers. Uh, he says, there are other creatures whom I won't describe because if I did, the grown-ups would probably not let you read this book. Um, and Alan Jacobs, who's a Narnian scholar, had a couple of comments on this sort of tone that Lewis has where he's able to speak specifically to children. And the first thing is that he he sort of relieves the tension a little bit when he does this as though to assure the children that, that it's okay, it will be all right. Remember, you're reading a story. Um, this is a story, everything will be well. So he offsets with this sort of avuncular 
uh, tone of an uncle speaking to a child. Uh, this sort of tone of, of warmth and friendliness offsets a lot of the horror and the violence, especially of this scene. And so to inter- intervene and to say there are other creatures I won't describe, because if I did, the grownups would probably not let you read this book. It, it brings that, a little, that relief of tension there. Also, just contextually, at the time these were published, there was a, a pretty, um, pretty serious uh, outcry from some families about the violence of the books. And so this might be Lewis trying to um, relieve some of that as well. But also this, um, this statement that he's making about the violence of the scene, the monsters, he says, I won't describe them because grownups wouldn't let you read this book. It reminds us too about something that Lewis cared very deeply about, which is why fairy tales with all of the evil and the villainy and the sorcery and the power and the and the bloodshed and the terror that is involved in a fairy tale, Lewis believed very strongly that fairy tales are important for children. And uh, his predecessor, Chesterton, thought so as well. I don't think you can read Orthodoxy uh, by Chesterton and not get the sense of the power of fairy tales um, for children, but also for adults, just like Lewis said in the prologue um, or in the dedication at the beginning of this book that one day you'll be old enough to read fairy tales again. And that is that Lewis found uh, what fairy tales teach about violence and horror and evil are not uh, are important for children and not something that we need to try to censor or try to shelter our children from and pretend like it doesn't exist. The world is a dark place. And just because a child is small doesn't mean that they need to be restrained from hearing about uh, villainy and betrayal and something like the death of Aslan, evil looking red flames and black smoke and everything else. And so although he refrains from describing some of these monsters in this moment, he doesn't let up on describing the overall fear and horror of Aslan's death. It's a, it's a brutal moment, emotionally at least. And there's a passage from Lewis's essay titled On Three Ways of Writing for Children that is quite important on this point. Um, he says this, A far more serious attack on the fairy tale as children's literature comes from those who do not wish children to be frightened. I suffered too much from night fears myself in childhood to undervalue this objection. I would not wish to heat the fires of that private hell for any child. On the other hand, none of my fears came from fairy tales. Since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. Let there be wicked kings and beheadings, battles and dungeons, giants and dragons, and let villains be soundly killed at the end of the book. Nothing will persuade me that this causes an ordinary child any kind of degree of fear beyond what it wants and needs to feel. And I quoted this essay a couple episodes ago where Lewis says, since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. And so this is exactly what this moment is meant to do for the child that's reading it or having it read to them, that though this is a dark night, uh, we need to teach children that dark nights come before glorious dawns. That the, uh, As the famous song says, the shadow proves the sunshine. John Foreman's song from Switchfoot. Switchfoot. The shadow proves the sunshine. Darkness 
Um, joy comes in the morning, the Bible says, that uh, though sorrow may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. That uh, I consider that these present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. There is something about fairy tales that absolutely express and demonstrate evil and fear and the monstrous and cruel hags and ogres and evil spirits and horrors and ghosts and ghouls. All of these things are certainly necessary in a good fairy tale, even if they cause fright and fear, because what we're doing, as Lewis said in his essay, is that since it's likely children will meet cruel enemies in life, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. What we're doing in this scene is providing a chapter of horror and darkness and sorrow so that the bravery and the victory and the triumph will be all the more palpable and all the more real and all the more beautiful. That th this is the way of the world. John 16, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. This is the way that Jesus operates. And so Lewis continues this scene. He says, Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies, but it never came. Because this is, this is the king we would expect, not the meek Aslan, not the lamb before slaughter that opens not its mouth. This is the king that we would anticipate. Lucy, Lucy and Susan waiting for Aslan's roar, springing upon his enemies and destroying them, but it never came. Instead, we see that Aslan makes no resistance at all. Uh, and all the dwarfs and all of the, uh, the ogres and the wraiths and so on, they shout and cheer as if they had done something brave. Though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the deaths of them all. Aslan had every right and every power to destroy everyone in that scene. And yet he makes no resistance at all. And it's interesting to see the side of evil shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Notice how Lewis says that. He, they shout and cheer as if they had done something brave, but what they're doing is not brave at all. Um, shaving him, tying him down so many different times, fighting somebody who doesn't fight back is not bravery. Um, they try to humiliate Aslan in the scene by shaving him. Uh, we recall Edmund's drawing the mustache on the stone statue of a lion in the White Witch's Courtyard uh, several chapters earlier. But it's at the end of this paragraph um, that I'm looking at here that we really see uh, a beautiful statement from Lewis about what Aslan is doing here. Um, once he's been shaved, Susan and Lucy see um, how awful and pitiful this event is and how Aslan looks. Lucy says, oh, how can they? Said Lucy, tears streaming down her cheeks. The brutes, the brutes. For now that the first shock was over, the shorn face of Aslan looked to her braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever. So notice the contrast here, the, the paradox that what the white witch intended for evil to humiliate Aslan, to shave him, to tie him down, to kick him and jeer at him and beat him and mock him. Lucy says Aslan looked braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever. This is the portrait of Christ on the cross. This is the way of victory. That this is how we fight. We fight through sacrifice, meekness, generosity. We lay our lives down that we might find it. This is how the gospel advances. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Doug Wilson says we are to fight like a cavalier, not like a thug. 
we don't fight the world on the world's terms. We don't get in the muck ourselves. We don't retaliate like Lucy and Susan had expected Aslan to, swiping at the enemies with his paws, roaring at the top of his lungs. But it's in his shavenness, in his abuse, in his restraint, that Aslan looks braver and more beautiful than ever. This is the noble king laying his life down for his friends. In fact, um, this is Romans 5.8. Uh, let me mention Romans 5.8 for you. Let me just read it uh, word for word so I don't mess it up. Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That Aslan's death here was for a sinner was for Edmund, the traitor, and yet he looks braver and more beautiful. He got, Lewis goes on to say he never moved, and this seemed to enrage all that rabble. They wanted a reaction from Aslan. That's what evil wants. They want us to lose our cool. They want Aslan to retaliate and fight back, but he never moved, and that seemed to enrage him. They tie him down and tighten the cords more, which is just, they know Aslan's power very well. You don't fight something that you think has no power, all right? You don't concentrate so much attention and so much effort on something that you don't think is a formidable adversary, which tells us something about the world today. The world's hatred of Christianity tells us how powerful the name of Jesus is. Why so much of focus and attention otherwise? And so the fact that they continue to, to punch and kick and jeer and shout, and they tie him down more and tighten the cords more, they know how powerful Aslan truly is, despite what he looks like, despite what they've propped him up to look like. They know that this is a wild king, the king. Right? Remember the dwarf tells the white witch, he says that, that Aslan is on the move, that he's breaking your winter, that they all know, the white witch knows. She's terrified. They all are. And yet they're setting up the circus as a way of giving them the, the feeling of bravery, the bravado of victory, although there's no victory in it ultimately. When Lucy and Susan see the actual execution, Lewis uh, comments on the stone knife that the White Witch is holding. We've seen it once already. Uh, the stone knife appears later in the series in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And it becomes this honored object there. It's on Aslan's table um, where the three, uh, the three Narnian lords are sleeping. They're under this enchanted sleep. And they see the stone knife there in the Dawn Treader. And Paul Ford says this about the, the stone knife itself, especially as it appears as an honored object later in uh, the Dawn Treader. He says, like the cross of Christ, the ugly instrument of Aslan's death has become a revered symbol of the atonement. And so this stone knife has come to embody what was an ugly and cruel instrument of death has come to embody the symbol of Christ's of Aslan's atonement itself, just like the cross with Christ's atonement. And Lewis ends this chapter with a great contrast and a great irony. Let me read it for you. At last she drew near. She stood by Aslan's head. Her face was working and twitching with passion, but his looked up at the sky, still quiet, neither angry nor afraid, but a little sad. Then, just before she gave the blow, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, And now who has won? Fool, did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him, as our pact was, 
and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life, and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. The children did not see the actual moment of the killing. They couldn't bear to look and had covered their eyes. Notice the contrast in their faces. Lewis says her face was working and twitching with passion, but his looked up at the sky, still quiet, neither angry nor afraid, but a little sad. This is the peace which passes all understanding. And then the great question that uh, begins the White Witch's uh, last words to Aslan before she kills him. And now, who has won? And her statement there, she believes she has won. She says Aslan has given all of Narnia to her that she can uh, continue her reign of terror and her rampage. She'll kill Edmund as well. Continue to thwart the prophecy and maintain her power. And also from the chapter, the title of the chapter, The Triumph of the Witch, we're led to believe that she has won. But as we already know, things don't always, um, things are not always as they appear. And so when she says, and now who has won? The irony is that this is the decisive blow of Aslan's victory. His death, his sacrifice is the very punch that will deliver the final death blow to the White Witch and all of the powers of darkness. It is by his death and his atonement that all of Narnia will be saved. So thank you for listening. Uh, be sure to tune in next time as we look at chapter 15, one of my favorite chapters in the novel, titled Deeper Magic from Before the Dawn of Time. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.